This podcast is sponsored by Magic Spoon. As you've heard me say before, when I was growing up, one of my favorite escapes was being able to eat that sugary treat cereal that really seemed to define the 1980s. Now I'm a grown-up. I can't do that anymore. It's not good for you. Enter Magic Spoon. They are producing great tasting cereals that will remind you of those treat cereals from your childhood, but without all of the junk. I'm talking zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. Each serving is also only 140 calories. We're talking keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb, and yet it still tastes fantastic. Now, here's what you can do. You can build your own variety box, a custom bundle where you can choose from the flavors cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, blueberry, cinnamon, cookies and cream, and maple waffle. Now, I am partial to frosted, but keep in mind there that cookies and cream and maple waffle are now permanent new flavors in the rotation. They had been limited availability flavors. They sold out, and now they are in the permanent list of flavors available to build your own custom box this is one of my favorite escapes a bowl of healthy yet delicious magic spoon so go to magicspoon.com slash cal to grab a custom bundle of cereal to try today be sure to use that promo code cal at checkout to save five dollars off your order magic spoon is so confident in their product that it's backed with a 100 happiness guarantee if you don't like it for any reason They'll refund your money, no questions asked. So get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash cal and use that code cal to save $5 off. I'm Cal Newport, and this is Deep Questions, episode 134. This is a listener calls mini episode, and we have a good collection of calls covering both deep work and the deep life to get into. A couple things I want to do before we get to the calls. The first is revisiting our discussion from last Thursday's mini episode, in which I reacted more or less live on the air to a article about leaked slides from within Facebook, leaked slides that showed that they had internal data that was showing that Instagram was harmful to their adolescent girl users. And and this was, uh, in particular, self-reporting data. X percent of the adolescent girl Facebook users we interviewed told us, this led to my suicide attempt. This has led to make me feel bad about myself. And my big point there is that when it comes to this topic, We should be giving primacy to direct self-reports above all else. When a a group is saying this directly is causing me harm, we should say, okay, how do we help that group get away from the harm this thing is causing? I think for whatever reason, we get so caught up in treating this, and by we, I mean the research community, treating this topic abstractly. Treating it as the output of, you know, data set analysis, like, well, you know, I I can change the variables in my data analysis and I can make this signal go away. 
that's fine in the abstract, but we we have in the concrete now people actually reporting this is a problem. If you if you see someone has fallen into a hole as you walk by and they yell out help, you know, I'm uh, I'm stuck in this hole, I need your help. The right response is not, well, you know, I've been doing an analysis of people's relationships with holes and in general, uh most people who are near holes are okay. So I'm going to keep walking. We don't do that. Or we don't say, well, maybe, but let me just uh let me turn from you to the crowd next to you and say, you know, for some groups holes are very useful and it's actually part of their economy and we should be we should be a little bit careful about demonizing holes and pause for applause. Meanwhile, again, the person next to you is stuck in the hole and needs help. And that's somehow sometimes how I feel about social media overuse issues is let's stop being theoretical. Let's stop being statistically abstract. Let's stop looking for people to applaud our sophisticated take on the issue and let's help the people in the hole. All right. So with that in mind, I wanted to read to you a message that I received after last week's episode. This is from a uh, pediatric emergency room attending physician at a hospital here in the the D.C. area. And uh, here's what she said. Here's what I've learned from my job. Never give your children a smartphone. No joke. Don't ever. It literally ruins lives. It's unreal the amount of kids I've seen who threaten to kill themselves, become depressed, become combative, etc., all because of a smartphone being taken away or because of talking to strangers online, etc. It's incredible. Someone should track the mental health data and how many more kids are having issues because of smartphones. All right, a bit of an aside here. Uh, obviously, this data is being tracked. Um, all right, returning to this note, she goes on to say, my kids uh, will never have a smartphone. They can have a flip phone. I'm serious. No smartphones. My kids can hate my guts and be the weirdo in their friend group, but it's not happening. I mean, literally completely normal, happy, smart kids. Parents say they got a phone started talking to weirdos they don't even know, and their lives were ruined. They become combative, depressed, suicidal. I've heard this over and over again. I mean, literally one girl threatened to jump out a window today because her parents took her phone away. These are normal parents, and their kids go crazy because of their phone. It's unreal. All right? So this is just, again, uh, this is a doctor, a pediatric ER doctor. So this is just what she is seeing. Kids coming through with psychological admits coming through her hospital. So again, you hear the person in the hole saying, help me get out of the hole. You say, let's go grab a ladder. We can write a report on the statistical incident of hole injuries later, but this person right now needs to get back up to the ground level. All right. So I thought that was a nice addition to last week's rant. All right. There's one other thing I want to do before we get to the calls. Longtime subscribers to my email newsletter know that over the last five or six years, I have formed a, a partnership of sorts with my longtime friend Scott Young and his company to produce innovative online courses. I'm really interested in this, this space of how do you move pedagogy beyond just what you can teach people in books and find those who are really interested in mastering a new skill, find other ways to, to reach them and help them build their skill. I've done a few courses with Scott Young, but the very first one we released back in 2016 was called Top Performer. Since that course was released, we've had over 5,000 students take it, and we've been updating and learning from these students over the years, and 
we finally, over this last summer and last spring, worked really hard to produce a new version of the course, Top Performer 2.0, which integrates everything we learned from those five years and 5,000 students who came before. That course is now available for sign up at top-performer-course.com. Anyways, I thought in uh, in honor of the release of the new version of this course, I would have Scott Young stop by his first appearance on the Deep Questions podcast. We'd have a brief five, 10 minute chat about how we got started in online courses, what we've learned from running this particular course, et cetera. It's, it's an interesting topic. So uh, let's do five or 10 minutes with Scott Young before we get to our questions. Scott Young, is it possible that this is your debut uh, appearance on the Deep Questions podcast? I think it is. I'm, I'm honored to be here. Now, I find that hard to believe. I, obviously, people <laughs> who have been consuming my stuff for a while uh, know Scott Young. We have done stuff together in this realm for uh, quite a while now. And so I'm glad to finally have an excuse to get you on the show. And uh, that excuse is you and I did this course many years ago. We say five, but it was really more than five, called Top Performer. Uh, this was pre-deep work. This was pre-your book, Ultra Learning. This was after So Good They Can't Ignore You. It was based on So Good They Can't Ignore You. And now, five, six years later, we have a new version, Top Performer 2.0. The session is now open for signups until October 8th at midnight Pacific time. And we thought this would be a great occasion to have you on. Maybe we can we can talk a little bit about how this course came to be, how the very idea of us doing courses came to be what we've learned from having over 5,000 students go through the original version of the course, which I think is uh, quite amazing. Um, just seems interesting to me. So I'm, I'm glad you came on here. Do you remember in the, in the hazy mist of history, how it was that, you know, you convinced me that maybe we should, uh, we should do an online course. Well, I know that uh you were writing about deliberate practice and you were writing about these rare and valuable skills that you needed to improve your career. That wasn't so good. They can't ignore you. And I was really interested in learning and learning science still, I still am today. And I think that there was a sort of natural overlap of our interests of, you know, trying to figure out this problem of like, how do you get really good at the things that matter in your job? And there wasn't really a course about that. If, if we looked online, if we were looking in things, there was, you know, lots of guides on, how to network better and write your resume. But there wasn't really a lot about how do you get really good at your job. And so we wanted to try to fill that gap and present some of the research that we had uncovered, some of our own personal experiences. And we ran a few pilots. We worked with some early students, people from academic programming, all sorts of backgrounds to try to kind of fine tune the methodology. And it was really eye-opening for us. It was eye-opening not only just from how you know, in some cases, theory diverges from practice, but also in what are the practical steps that people actually have to do in order to improve their careers. And I was, you had done some courses before, but what was convincing to me, part of what caught my attention is A, that topic, obviously, I'd just written a book about it. I was writing about it extensively. I cared a lot about this topic of how you get good in your career. I cared a lot about it because I was an early career professor at the time and I, I needed to get good. But I was also fascinated by your early experience with online courses. You know, I don't talk about that often on the podcast, the online course part of the 
Cal Newport world, but it's one that I feel really strongly about because you convinced me back then that there's a lot of innovation to happen in pedagogy and books, you know, I knew books, books do a pretty good job of helping people make change in their life. Uh, I did a lot of talks. Talks do an okay job of helping people do change in their life. Um, but I was also a teacher. So I saw, you know, hey, if I can get in front of people, you can do a pretty good job of changing people. And something about the online course format caught my attention of, oh, I think there is something here. This is one of the things that has been enabled by the internet that we're sort of sleeping on a little bit back then, which is we can do something like we did for Top Performer, where it's lessons taught by video with me and you, but you're also going through the course with a cohort of other students and hearing what they're doing and getting the feedback from them. And then you're getting particular projects, which you do, but then you report back to projects into the system. And there's this interactivity between the information, you doing action, the information, other students. Something about that really can induce a lot of change. I'm very bullish on the format, which is why, you know, I wasn't sure, will this work? And the fact that 5,000 students have, you know, gone through this process uh, tells me that that we're on to something. And probably I should talk about this as a general point more, that the very well-constructed expert online course is, is an innovation there in pedagogy when done right. Not masterclass, like let's just have someone talk at camera for six hours because they're famous, we'll pay $90 for it. But like, honest to God, like we did multiple pilots, multiple iterations to figure out what works. What an exciting format. You know, what, what I, anyways, I think it's a, it's something that we should be seeing more of in the world. You do it really well. You have other courses beyond the ones we've done together, but that's, that's a key part. So how did you just deep history here? How did you come to understanding the potential here in the online world for there's a new way of actually affecting change in people's lives or interactive digital asynchronous uh, online delivery as a, as a mode of pedagogy? Because you were doing this before Top Performer. You talked me into it. What talked you into it originally? Well, I mean, I've been a huge fan of online courses. I mean, I've practically built a brand around that of, of you know, doing like my MIT Challenge project and other things involving online learning. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of this ability to asynchronously, you know, learn from the best people, but not just learn, you know, get information. It's not just about sitting and, you know, watching something entertaining, although that can be fun. It's also about having this structured plan for action, because I think one of the things that's really hard about reading a book, even if they do, you know, break off and they have like a worksheet at the end or something like this, is that you read through it, but you're fundamentally engaging in it in this sort of passive way that you're reading through the book. And I know that there are books where you can sit down and take notes and mind map out what you're going to do with the book. But often you read the book, you close it, and you're like, wow, that was really great. And then you do nothing about it. And so I really liked the idea of, you know, classes that had homework and comment sections where you could write about, well, I'm, I'm not sure how you do this one thing. And then someone from the course could actually tell you, okay, I think you should do this instead. And so I think that there is this really, uh, powerful element to a course format where you engage with the material in a more intensive way over a longer period of time that is fundamentally driven by taking action. It's fundamentally driven by, I'm going to actually go do these things and reflect on it rather than, you know, here's some interesting theories. Now, I mean, I love books too. And so I don't get me wrong. I just think there's different strengths and weaknesses to the medium. And, you know, everyone reads lots of books, but not everyone takes uh, online courses. And I think you're absolutely right too, that such a new 
new format. There's so many people doing various things out there that you have huge ranges of quality. You have, you know, really, really good stuff. And you also have pure charlatanry on the other side. And so I think um, it's just kind of a wild west in terms of formats and expectations you can get out of it. But I think when it's done really well, it can be quite powerful. Yeah, I think those are the two limiting factors. One is it's content is hard. So when you have the massive companies that say, well, let's just try to suck in a lot of people who who all just create courses at some uh, price point, it's hard to create courses and just saying, hey, go ahead and create a course. They're not good. But I've watched your company work on the tech platform. That's the other reason why you don't see a, a ton of authors doing like what we're doing here with Talk Performer is I have watched you for six years now, your company continually upgrading, tweaking, custom building, programming, building out your support team, building out the the tech pipelines and processes. It's actually a really big technical headache to have an interactive online platform that 5,000 students can go through <laughs> and access it multiple ways. It's multimedia. So these courses are video, uh, it's audio, it's visual slides that move through its interactive worksheets and the just the the sheer amount of overhead and back end that goes into making these things run uh that's why you can't i guess just on a whim say i have an idea let me make a course um well let's before we run out of time let's talk let's talk content a little bit so 5000 students is a lot of people we've heard from and you know mm-hmm. your team has done a great job of all these surveys and feedback and we we we're we're in the weeds and the uh with the TA sometimes seeing what's going on with the course. There's a lot of things we learned watching all these students go through this process of trying to deliberately get better at things to improve their career. I know what in your mind, what's one of the more surprising things uh, or well, I think, interesting or funny things? Yeah, I think this was something that we learned uh, in an early pilot. So it was sort of present from the top performer when we were calling it top performer itself from the beginning but was how important it is to get this kind of local on the ground knowledge of how your career works. Because we ran this uh, first cohorts with people and it became obvious that often people had like no idea what they should be working on, that they would just like pick things like, you know, a chimp throwing darts at a dartboard and be like, well, I think I want to read this book or I want to do this. And um, they were not based on anything. And so what we found was that you know, actually doing this process of research came first because I think we started on with this idea that, okay, it's going to be all deliberate practice and we're going to have people, you know, doing these intensive drills and projects to like yeah. squeeze out the ability. And I think that is an important part, but we we found that in working with students that even just figuring out what it is that you need to be good at. How does your career even work? What are people focusing on? Like, what what should you be trying to get good at? Um, is underrated, and so we spend a long part of that in the course of, you know, not only who do you contact, but how do you reach out to them? How do you make sure you set up a meeting with them? What questions do you ask them? All of these things. It turns out people were surprisingly terrible at, and you'd get you know bad advice, or you'd talk to totally the wrong people, and then you'd be like, well, I don't know, I'm not quite sure what I should do with my career, and so honing that process uh, took some time to figure out what is a way of instructing people so that they can, you know, with the limited time we have available, find those contacts who are going to give you actually useful advice and not just the generic platitude kind of advice, but, oh, go talk to so-and-so, get this job here, make sure you work on this kind of project. That's going to be the thing that moves your career forward. Yes. uh, Figuring out what to do, that caught us off guard. And and the the thing that caught my attention to was the project model that definitely came a little later 
oh, everything has to be wrapped up in a concrete project that you've committed to that the completion of that project will force you to do the deliberate practice. It turns out when we just were advising people like Rocky and Rocky Four to just go into their metaphorical cabins and lift up wagons and run, run up and down mountains, like just deliberately practice in isolation, uh, that doesn't last too long. It has to be practiced, aimed at it. I will say the other thing I noticed that I think is disappointing about the world <laughs> is that um, our students more recently versus the students five, six years ago, uh, it's busier. Like just in that five or six years, that's a small window. Work life has gotten more frenetic, more slack, more email, more hyperkinetic back and forth. So, you know, keeping on top of that so you have time to deliberate practice has gotten harder in just five years. That's why I, we one of the things we added for 2.0 for this new release of the course, the new version is, you know, a whole mini course I, I, I put together on let's just go through the productivity baby steps. I've talked about these on the podcast before. I get into them in depth in a mini course we added. We didn't need that in 2015 as much as we need it today, where it's like, we got to talk about daily, weekly, quarterly planning and full capture and working your Trello boards. And so, you know, that's an interesting other observation that makes me a little sad is that it's become harder and harder to actually find a breathing room to do anything deliberate. But don't worry, we have you covered. We did add a mini course on this type of productivity. But I think that's also, there's a flip side of that too, because given how, you know, frenetic and distracted we are these days, I think there is an even higher premium on people who can, you know, deliver excellent, consistent work. And so I think the method of top performer, of isolating what matters in your career and putting some focus on it and choosing very carefully um, projects and efforts that are going to move you forward, I think because it's so rare, I think it becomes more valuable that, you know, most people, when you look around you in your job, are not going to be doing this. And so you can be a bit of an exception there. And so I'm hoping that this course, and especially with all the new additions we've made, kind of taking stock of the years we've spent working with all these students will be beneficial to people, whether they're, you know, early in their career, still figuring things out, or whether they've gotten into a bit of a rut. You know, they've been working in their career for 10, 15, 20 years, and they want to do something new. They want to do a transition. They want to get ahead. They want to, you know, finally start making some progress. I, I'm hopeful that some of these new insights will be useful to these uh, new cohorts of students as well. I think I think it definitely will be. I'm excited about this. Top Performer 2.0. Uh, to find out more, go to, I don't know if I have this right, Scott. It's top uh, dub, yeah, com. And of course, there's going to be links on both yours and, and my website. Um, and we're going to be having registration for the new session until uh, October 8th. <laughs> we we got to get a better URL. I'm just, I'm just thinking. About, this, this reminds me of the yeah the, the famous SNL sketch of the the uh, the financial firm that is a real serious commercial, and then they give their address, and it was something like clownpenis.fart. and they're like, "What well, was the last URL? It was the only URL available." <laughs> no one's we. So, but you know what? We're not wasting money on URLs. We're putting all that money into making the the course better. So that's that's a top dash performer dash course dot com. Um, I'm also sending out a bunch of extracted, uh, Scott and I extracted a bunch of, you know, more detailed lessons we've learned over five years. I'm sending mm-hmm. out something about that to the newsletter. So if you're interested in some of the the details of what we discovered doing this for so long, keep an eye out uh, on my new th- newsletter. Or if you subscribe to Scott's, you'll, you'll see it there too. Um, but in the meantime, check that out. And Scott, thank you for dropping by the podcast. Well, that was great. I was glad to have a chance to get Scott on the show. Now, the 
the eagle-eared listener may notice a difference between my voice now and in that pre-recorded segment. My voice now, of course, is a, a deeper, a deeper tone, and that is because if you're wondering, I am uh, I'm fighting the aftermath of a cold that has been ripping through my strategy. So that's that's why you're getting. Uh, silky smooth deep voice cal in today's episode so you know uh, enjoy it while we have it all right let's get started with calls our first one has to do with returning to deep work after 16 months of a pandemic in which that was almost impossible hi cal my name is julie and my question is about transitioning back into regular deep work now that the pandemic is ending I am a full-time author, and for the last 16 months or so, my four children have been at home with me, which has, as you can imagine, hindered my uninterrupted and focused writing sessions. I do have routines and rituals. I take a walk every morning. I light a candle at the start of every writing session to signal to my brain that it's time to write. But during the pandemic, I haven't been able to light that candle as much as I'd like, either actually or metaphorically. I'm also converting the shed in my backyard into a writing space. Thank you for your New Yorker piece validating that decision. I think that will help. This fall, when my kids will be back in school, I'm already anticipating a lot of self-imposed pressure to make up for lost productivity time. I know that you've talked about giving your brain time to feel uncomfortable as you get used to deep work, to maybe expect the first 15 minutes of a deep work session to be hard when you're learning how to do it. I'm wondering if I should expect this to happen on a larger scale as I get back to work. Julie, this is a good question. It's one I'm hearing in one form or the other quite a bit recently. But we can start with a moment of gratitude. The idea that we can actually work at our home without multiple kids also being in that home, I'm just very happy that this is possible again. I mean, think back to this time last year where if you lived in a blue state, you had that sinking realization, oh, they're not going to open these schools and this is not going to change anytime soon. Wait, I'm supposed to still work. How is this going to happen? Remember that sinking despair feeling? So let's let's look back at that so that we can – we can have some happiness about where we are now or where we actually can work again. My main thing I noticed in the first couple of weeks after schools were open here where I lived was how many groups of parents I saw just going on walks, like friends without their kids and how happy everyone worked, looked. I think we were all proverbially slapping high five as we passed by. All right, but let's get to your question because, yes, there are difficulty now. If you were in a situation in which it was very difficult to do much in the way of intense, deep work, and now you're out of that situation, how do we make the adjustment? And there's two things I want to keep in mind here, two things I want to highlight. Number one, you were right to think about this as a gradual reentry. The mindset of, oh, I got to make up for lost time. The mindset of, I'm going to come into my deep work habits 50% more than I was doing pre-pandemic to make up for lost time, that's not going to succeed. It's like after you've had a physical injury, you had a surgery, and you haven't been able to play whatever, tennis, for three months while you healed your hurt elbow or something, you don't jump in and say, I am going to practice twice as hard to try to make up for lost time. You're going to blow out your elbow again. So we want to come back into this gradually, right? So have some uh, self-empathy on this particular, particular issue. We got to get those muscles, those cognitive muscles back in shape before we push them too hard. The other thing I've been emphasizing is do something radical to recommit to the role of depth 
And you're doing this. I was very happy to hear that you're doing this because I was going to recommend it. Uh, if you hadn't told me that you were converting your shed into a deep workspace, I was going to recommend something similar. And, I, and there's a real psychological rationale for this. I think to shift your psychological mindset away from pandemic dumpster fire maintenance into badass writing, let's produce some smart thoughts mode. There has to be a relatively large shift here. And I think a radical physical move could help support that shift. So a work from near home setup where you you convert a shed like you're doing, or you rent some office space in town where you, you, you spend some money, spend some money on, I'm going to build a new location just for this work to reconfirm and reaffirm for myself that this is an important thing I do and I'm going to structure it into my life, I think is really important right now. If you can take money away from other types of expenditures and move it towards a work-from-near-home setup, I think now is the time to do it. So uh, what you're doing, Julie, I think is right. I think that's going to help. So you're building a new space. You're building some new rituals then around this space. The old rituals have probably lost some of their potency because they they petered out as – your ability to do deep work got diminished by the kids being at home and the anxiety of the pandemic. They were probably, you were still kind of trying them and it wasn't really working. They petered out. You need new rituals, new location, new rituals. Start with regular but modest amounts of depth and then work your way back up. I mean, I think in general, this is good for many aspects of returning to life post-pandemic professional aspects, fitness and health aspects, social community support aspects. We need a bit of a jolt, you know. We need that a bit of a, a radical change in these elements of our lives to to jolt us out of the pandemic mindset. So, for a lot of aspects of our lives, we need to do the the metaphorical equivalent of Julie's deep work shed that she is building in her backyard. Let me tell you, I'm going through this as well. Um, the thing that really fell off for me. During the pandemic, it was more my my computer science research than my writing. Uh, writing, it's so solitary, and I was able to find times and spaces to do it, and was able to to, to more or less keep that up. Uh, but my my computer science research fell fell off, and I'm finding myself now. I'm really working to to get that up to speed, and I'm doing exactly what I'm suggesting to you, Julie. Um, I'm doing some radical restructuring of where I work, my habits surrounding work, getting back to in-person collaboration, which is so crucial for the type of research I do. And, and the lack of that collaboration was so uh, in, such an important part of the explanation for why that work fell off for me. Uh, there's a lot I'm doing now to basically rebuild from scratch that part of my life. Even though I've been doing it professionally for a very long time. I've been a professor for a decade. I've published 60 or 70 peer-reviewed papers. I've been cited thousands of times. I know how to do research. I have rituals and routines that have always worked. The pandemic disrupted them. I'm not just going back to what I did before. I have to do something different to get back to that mindset. So I'm actually living this. I'm actually living this right now. So I'm glad you brought it up, Julie. And, and then again, the summarize for everyone, there's probably multiple things in your life that are important to you that got disrupted by the pandemic that you're now trying to get back to. And when doing that, have some empathy that you can gradually work yourself back in. And two, do something radical, rebuild your routines, invest in a new space, buy a fancy new tool. You'll be willing to do something radical to get back into it. That is not a, a failure of will. It's a psychological reality that it is difficult to jumpstart these things again. So build your shed, Julie, 
and everyone else should do their metaphorical equivalent. This podcast is sponsored by Grammarly. Writing is power in our current world. The more clearly you can express yourself, the more seriously you will be taken and the more opportunities that will be open to you. The key is making sure that you express yourself as clearly as possible. Now, if you're a professional writer like me, you get to work with a lot of different editors. But if you're not, you can use Grammarly Premium to help you get that same type of attention. Grammarly Premium does more than just correct grammar or spelling mistakes. It can actually give you clarity suggestions. How do we avoid, for example, repeated or unnecessary words? It will also give you vocabulary suggestions. No more searching for synonyms. It can offer suggestions to replace overused words or overused phrases. When I use Grammarly Premium, I am impressed by the intelligence of these suggestions. It makes the writing better, all without having to have an actual editor sitting there looking over your shoulder. The good news is the Grammarly Premium product can be seamlessly integrated into wherever you do your writing, be it Microsoft Office, your internet browser, your phone, and more. So hit send with confidence and get your point across more effectively with Grammarly Premium. Now you can get 20% off Grammarly Premium by signing up at Grammarly.com slash deep. That's 20% off at G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash deep. This podcast is sponsored by Optimize, a subscription service founded by my longtime friend Brian Johnson designed to help you make your life deeper by putting into action some of the best insights from the ancients all the way to modern science. When you subscribe to Optimize, you get access to over 600 philosopher notes. These are six-page book summaries of the most impactful nonfiction books ever written, every summary written by Brian Johnson himself. I have had multiple of my books summarized as a philosopher notes, and I can tell you these are some of the best summaries I have ever read. You also get access to over 50 101 video courses where experts teach you some of the ideas from these books. I recorded one of these, Digital Minimalism 101, so that's one of the 50 courses available. Finally, if you subscribe to Optimize, you will get a plus one video in your inbox every morning featuring Brian Johnson teaching you just one big idea from one of these books. You get that dose of actionable depth in your inbox every morning. So if you're interested in helping to make your life deeper, go to optimize.me slash deep and use the coupon code deep when you sign up and get a 14 day free trial. And if you use that coupon code, you will get 10% off on your subscription if you stick with the service. So that's optimize.me slash deep and use that coupon code deep for a 14-day free trial and 10% off. All right, now let's jump from the deep life to a nitty-gritty question about work. Hi, Carl. This is Ayrat. Greetings from Brussels. Here come question. I have around five separate task boards for work, for sports, for art hobbies, for community sets, for household chores. It's a nice separation, but it's a bit hard to know which projects 
require an urgent action and which require nothing. So, how do you organize tasks selection for your week and for your day? Do you simply loop through all your task boards and see what requires your attention and then schedule according to your priorities? But that can be tedious, as the number of task boards may be huge. Well, tedious or not, once a week when you're building your weekly plan, you do need to look at every task on every task board. This is classic David Allen task stress psychology. If your mind does not believe that everything put on one of those task boards will be seen again, will not be forgotten, will be reviewed, if it does not believe that, then your mind is going to say, I probably need to keep track of this thing on my own. Let's put some mental resources into keeping this open loop open. I worry about it being forgotten and the maintenance of these tasks, keeping them alive just in your brain is going to reduce your capacity and be a source of stress. So this is David Allen 101. The system has to be trusted. What you trust to happen is that no task will be forgotten. Now, I think you're too worried about how tedious this will be. Five task boards, a couple hundred tasks. How long is that going to take to review? Five minutes. You're not doing like an in-depth dissertation on every task. You're literally just reading every card on every board. But that's enough for your mind to trust nothing will be forgotten. All right, so let's say you've done this. You've read all of your tasks on all five task boards. How do you then go from those task boards into execution? Well, what I normally talk about is three different layers of connecting task boards into a weekly plan. When doing that reading, you may identify some tasks that are urgent. They need to get done this week. They're going to take some time, and they're important enough that you're going to actually assign time for them on your calendar. Here are a priority task. A priority task will be put on my calendar Monday at 2 to 3 in between these two meetings. I am, whatever, submitting this form that I have to submit. So that's the first way that you interact is there's some real priority tasks you want to make sure get done. Put them on your calendar. Two, you might build a list of highlighted tasks. All right? Okay, these are tasks. I'm not assigning them to a particular time this week, but I really want to make sure these in particular, get done this week. So you can have a list of highlighted tasks on your weekly plan. And then when you're building a daily time block plan, you're putting in time some admin time, you might dedicate some admin blocks to to these highlighted tasks. I'll often put specific highlighted tasks in specific admin blocks when I'm building a time block plan for the day. Like, you know, I have an hour here for task. Let me look at my weekly plan. I have seven highlighted tasks on here. Let me Let me assign three of them to this admin block once I'm building my time block plan for the current day. The last way you interact with your task list is just having undifferentiated admin blocks on your time block schedule, in which case you say, look, I'm going to return to my task boards and just see what's on here that I might want to get done. So those are three different ways you can connect task boards to actual execution Now, how do you decide what should be a priority task or what should be highlighted tasks or what you should do if you're just in a generic admin block and looking at your task boards to find something to do? I would say don't overthink it. There's not a complex system here that you need. Trust your instincts. It usually is pretty obvious like, yeah, let's get these things done this week. This has to get done this week. If you're in the moment and you're looking at your task boards, again, this is classic David Allen you're usually pretty good at saying, here's a couple of reasonable things to get done. So don't overcomplicate how you actually make decisions about what tasks to do. But those would be the three 
types of linkages I would suggest between your task list, be them on boards or whatever technology you're using, and your actual execution. All right, let's do a question here about activity selection. Hi, Carl. My name is Jonas, and I'm a financial analyst from Switzerland. Thank you very much for all your work. It's been very helpful. I have a question regarding the activity selection step of your productivity funnel. I've heard you talk about values, roles, buckets, and keystone habits, as well as rules. My guess is that all of these are relevant for proper activity selection, and I'm trying to piece them all together. For example, one of my roles in my community bucket is being a father. One value in this role is being present for my kids. A keystone habit to support this would be to adapt a fixed schedule so that I always leave work at five. Is this an appropriate way to think about the activity selection step, or am I overthinking this? Thank you very much. So I would say this question is not about activity selection in the generic sense like we were talking about in my answer to the last question about how you figure out what tasks to execute each day. And I would say it's more specifically about value-driven activity selection. In other words, how do you make sure that your deeply held values are adequately reflected in what you are doing day to day? So the keystone habit approach, that strategy that you mentioned your case study, that's one great way to do this. You know, just as a reminder, as we talk about on the show, you should identify the different buckets or elements that are important to you in making up a deep life. And for each of these, you should have a keystone habit, something that you do every day and that you track your execution of that helps signal to yourself that you take that particular element or bucket in the deep life seriously. Uh, If you use a time block planner, which you can find out about, of course, on timeblockplanner.com, there's a metric space where you can actually track those every day on the top of the daily pages for every day. So that's the first thing. I think that's a great suggestion. So your example there of having a uh, having a bucket connected to your family life and having a keystone habit of I stop work at five, that's a way of signaling I value my family and I'm going to exert effort on other aspects of my life to prioritize that value. That's a great example. Um, that's a great example of that value actually being instantiated into your day. Another thing I'm going to recommend is consider doing what I call a value plan. You could call this a deep life plan. You could call this a bucket plan, whatever terminology you want to use. But once a week, maybe when you do your weekly plan, uh, or maybe, you know, if you do your weekly plan on Mondays, you might want to do this on Friday at the end of your work week when you're a little bit more reflective, review your buckets or elements, whatever you want to call them, the areas that are important to you in the deep life. You have a keystone habit in each. You've done some reflection on each. Review these and say, is there a place I want to put some particular work in the week ahead? You know, like maybe you feel in the constitution bucket, you're just really falling off the wagon. You're not exercising. You're eating poorly. So you say, I'm really going to focus on that this next week. Here's a reminder, like go back to this eating habit. I'm going to do an hour of walking every morning this week. It's basically a deep life tune-up plan where you pull out a few things that you want to tune up. You highlight them in this plan. I call it a value plan. You can call it a deep life plan. I put it at the top of my weekly plan. So every day when I'm looking at my weekly plan to figure out what do I want to do today, I also see that that value plan or deep life plan. Like, oh, yeah, I'm doing this this week. I'm emphasizing this this week. So it's a way to keep tuning up or improving parts of your life that you want to be deeper. 
So I suggest that. The third thing I'm going to say is if you follow my strategy of step one, keystone habit for each of these areas that's important to you, to your conception of the deep life. Step two, spend a month to two months with each of these areas, overhauling that part of your life. Those overhauls are going to, they will result with more activity that is keyed towards promoting that area that you find important. So if you actually do these overhauls, if you, if you, if you do the overhaul of your, like the, the family component of your conception of the deep life, you'll go beyond just a keystone habit, which in your case is, you know, finish work by five or this or that. And there might be other big changes you make to how you live your life. It might be like permanent changes in terms of changing your job situation or where you live so that you can better prioritize your family, or it could be new, uh, promises or guarantees you make. You're going to start volunteering at your kid's school. You're going to coach the the little league team. You're going to, you know, every Saturday for this year, we're going to go visit a different park, you know, state park within driving distance. These overhauls are going to generate a bunch of commitments and changes and habits that will introduce on a regular basis activity in your life connected to that thing you care about. All right, so those are the three things I have to suggest, but I like the way you're thinking. Foundational to the deep life is this notion of being very intentional about your activities such that your activities reflect what you care about, not just what is most alluring or arresting or anxiety-producing in the moment. All right, let's do a, a question here on Virginia Woolf. Hi, Cal. First, I'm a loyal fan of your ideas and worry that you'll eventually make good on your threat to claim a commission on work that people produce using your advice. I'm pretty sure my scholarly output tripled after finding the deep life, which makes me sound kind of like a cult member. But jokes aside, I would love to hear your thoughts on Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. Her essay strikes me as intersecting, yet also diverging from tenets of the deep life that you tout in the chorus of the Growth EQ guys, Scott Young, et al. Curious how you think your philosophy is similar to Wolf's, but especially how you think it is different. Thanks. Well, first of all, I appreciate you supporting my my plan to take a commission on professional advancement that occurs due to commitments to the ideas about deep work and the deep life. Though I'll tell you, the first place I'm going to try to take that commission is not going to be scholars because when we triple our productivity, we don't make more money. Uh, where I really want to focus for the commission plan is probably going to be hedge fund managers. See, if you triple your return for your hedge fund, that's where I want my commission. That's where I want my my 1% of the $50 million extra that that made you this year. Uh, so you're safe for now. I, I'm going to go for the, the, the Richies first with this plan. Um, so I don't know if I have a – my answer here is going to answer your particular question, but I will say I talk about Wolf's essay in Digital Minimalism. I talk about it in particular in my chapter on solitude. And I, I'm making this argument in that chapter that time alone with your own thoughts is how we structure our experience, make sense and evolve our understandings of ourselves, make sense and understand and evolve our understanding of the world and therefore get a more fully formed picture of what we're trying to do, what we're about, what we want to produce, what's important to us. Solitude, time alone with your own thoughts, is just critical to so much about a flourishing human life. And this is why I express real alarm about the side effect of 
smartphones, and in particular having this ubiquitous high-speed wireless internet access at all moments, at all places in your life to highly hyper-palatable, distracting content delivered up by algorithms that are selecting exactly what to show you to divert you in the moment, that this could destroy solitude. And if you destroy solitude, it's a problem. And I was arguing, among other things, that Wolf is making this point in that in that particular essay that when during that period, when women were denied literally a a space of their own just to go and be and think and create, you you are it's almost like you are denying the their humanity in some sense because you're denying this ability to actually like sit and reflect and become more fully formed in your understanding of yourself in the world. Now, of course, she keys in specifically on the production of fiction. That's her, that's her driving example. You know, without a space of your own, you can't write fiction. We don't have a lot of women fiction in the early 20th century. She's arguing not because of any lack of ability of women to write fiction, but because we're literally being denied the space necessary to do that cognitive work. But obviously there's a broader point being made here that having the space to do this interior cognitive work in itself is a fundamental part of the human experience. And we should be very wary about what might be denying it. So when Wolf is writing in the 1920s, we're, we're thinking about aspects of society that are denying this in this particular case for women. When we're looking today in the 2020s, so 100 years later, we have to throw onto our list of worries Technology robbing us of this space. The attention economy drive to monopolize every monetizable scent of our attention can also create that same type of effect. We lose this interior exploration on which our continued evolving humanity rests, and there's there's real problems. It, it's basically a diminished form, a diminished form of existence. So I don't know if this is exactly what you were getting at uh, when you were mentioning Wolf's essay vis-a-vis Brad and Scott. Um, but this is one thing I have thought about. I mean, this is how I've cited that essay before. So there's a lot, as with any good polemic, there's a lot of interesting threads that can be pulled out of this particular essay. And that's one thread in particular that uh, I think is is important and useful to pull. All right. I think we have time for one last question. Hey, Cal. Uh, just wondering if you have any tips on becoming a more focused reader. Uh, I'm a grad student and I find that I struggle to maintain attention while reading books of any genre. Um, Often I will get to the end of the book while having merely looked at the words on the pages and retained almost nothing. I know it's terrible. Um, I'm wondering if this is a product of years of phone addiction, uh, if I do have something diagnosable such as ADD or what, I don't know, but um, you've often recommended reading, uh, including up to two chapters a day as an act of sort of cognitive fitness, and just wondering if you have any tips on how to actually read well, that is to maintain focus and retain what you've read. Thanks. Almost certainly, it probably is your phone use. That is robbing you of your ability to read. I mean, especially if you would say you've, you're old enough to say that you used to be able to read much longer periods of time and have much more comprehension and that you have noticed over time that comprehension declining. If that's the case, then almost certainly it is your phone use that's declining it. If you've always had a hard time concentrating on reading, even before, let's say you were a heavy phone user, that's when you might also want to look into other potentially relevant diagnoses. But 
I'm going to guess it's probably your phone use. If you want more on how that happens, read Nick Carr's book, The Shallows. This was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and it really was one of the first books to get into the neuroscience of how this sort of constant distracting use of technology can actually rewire your brain in such a way that deeper, slower cognitive activities that used to come easier get harder. And I think it's a really big issue. And and what I would recommend to you is if you value if you value the depth of books, if you value deeper, more cultivated thinking, if you value the ability like we just talked about in my answer to the last question, the ability to with nuance and care explore the interior of your mind and build a stronger understanding of yourself and the world and your place in the world. If you value all those things, which I believe are critical to a flourishing human existence, you should care about this. And what I would suggest doing is radically changing your relationship with your phone. The foundation of this change should be a commitment to my phone is no longer my default activity when I have nothing else to do. As long as your phone is the default activity for I'm a little bit bored, I'm not literally in the middle of something else. Let me see what's on my phone. As long as that is your go-to knee-jerk reaction, your ability for sustained deep thought will continue to diminish. So how do you accomplish this? Well, a couple concrete tips that I'll suggest. One, at your home or apartment, use the phone foyer method. You plug your phone in near your door. That's where it is. If you need to look something up on your phone, you can walk over to your phone and look it up. It's plugged in. You can't take it with you. If there is a text conversation you need to have, well, you could stand by your phone in the foyer and have that text conversation. If a call is coming in, put the ringer on. You can always walk over there and see it. If you need to look up whatever, go over there and use it. But it is not with you. When you're watching TV, it's not with you. When you're waiting for the microwave to finish heating up your burrito, it's not with you. When you're eating dinner, it's not with you. When you have your morning coffee, it's not with you. The phone is literally not with you to play the role of the default fallback activity. So I would highly recommend that. At work, I would time block plan. And I would actually at first include in this time block plan a non-trivial number of 30-minute sessions for internet madness on my phone and text and sports rumors and social media, whatever you do, right? So that you're not cold turkey taken out of your life, but you're teaching your brain, we do this during work at times we have set aside for this. And once your brain is on board with that plan, give it a couple of weeks of, you know, every two hours you do a social media break. Now you can start reducing those breaks. And your brain says, yeah, this is what we do. We, we do social media when there's the breaks. And, oh, there's not a break for another five hours. I guess we're not going to look at our phone for five hours. So you begin again to put in place these activities to make sure in work and outside of work, the internet is not a default activity. This will make a big difference. Your brain will protest at first. Make sure, like I argue in digital minimalism, that you're not just white-knuckling it, that you have lots of other good activities, interesting books to read, interesting magazines to look at, interesting books on tape to listen to. You have other activities to fill in the void. You will get used to this, and then you will find your ability to understand reading will increase. When that happens, you can have longer reading sessions, more complicated books, you can get to the point where, you know, I am right now, I've, I've talked about this on the podcast, I'm at a pretty good peak, where I'm getting through five or six books a month, because once you really get that going, 
and you're barely using your phone or the internet as a default distraction and you get very used to, you've worked up your cognitive muscle of getting the books, getting the reading, you get in shape. Just like right now, if you said, look, I'm trying to run, I went for a run and I could only make it a half mile before I'm wheezing, I would say, yeah, you got to train. But if you train six months from now, you're going to knock off a 5K, no problem. That is what will happen if you're willing to commit to this training. But at the key of this training, again, is in work and life outside of work, you have to reorganize your life so that your phone is not the default activity. You then have to put in place lots of high-quality alternatives and build up your cognitive stamina with reading in particular. And I think you will find that you will get better. Now, is that worth doing? I think yes. A life of deep contemplation, I just argue, is going to be a life that is more meaningful and interesting than a life of shallow diversion. So I hope you follow through. Read Nick Carr's book if you want a jolt of motivation there and put down that phone. And with that, I'm going to put down this microphone and go get some Sudafed. Thank you, everyone, for the listener calls. Go to calnewport.com slash podcast for instructions on how you, too, can submit a call. Thanks to Scott Young for stopping by to talk about Top Performer. Be back on Monday. Until then, as always, stay deep. Stay deep.